welcome to episode number 35 of the National Land Realty Podcast, where we discuss all things land. Our goal here is to inform, educate, and entertain those of you who own land or are interested in the buying and selling of land throughout the United States. My name is Mac Christian, and I am the Chief Marketing Officer here at National Land Realty. I'll be your host for this episode. In this episode, I'm talking with land professional Drew Arnold from Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Drew has worked as a wildlife biologist for both private companies and public organizations. His background is a mouthful. We're going to go for it right now. He holds a Bachelor of Science in Biological Sciences, as well as a Master in Science in Wildlife, Aquatic, and Wildland Science and Management. Needless to say, this guy knows what he's talking about. His passion is upland game birds, particularly quail. Now, Drew is here to tell you what you need to know about quail habitat management. Sit back and enjoy. I am sitting here with Drew Arnold, and Drew, you're based out of Hattiesburg, Mississippi, and yes. uh, you have a, a background in in biology, of course, but particularly with with wild bird management. And in that case, you specialized a lot with quail. So, tell me a little bit about just how you ended up here, and and how you ended up with National Land, and sort of how you ended up picking this sort of specialty that you've been working with over the years. Yeah, so I've actually always had kind of a fascination with game birds as a, as a child. We, um, I grew up here south of Hattiesburg, Mississippi. We had a family farm. And so, you know, I was just always really interested in it. I mean, my dad was a hunter. He wasn't a bird hunter by any means, but, you know, we always got the hunting magazines and it just, I was just always fascinated with the upland game side of things. And so we, we kept some, um, Bob White Quail, and he used to do some bird hunting here locally with some friends and, and family. But, um, you know, by the time I came around, most of the quail were gone. So we we would keep the quail around, you know, the Bob Whites around just so we could listen to them. And I've uh, just been fascinated with them. Um, so, uh, and then we, you know, of course, I, I have a degree from the University of Southern Mississippi in biology. And I, I wasn't really sure uh, what I wanted to do, and I didn't really even realize that I could get a uh, job working in the uh, wildlife field. I didn't, I didn't know that was an option uh, at the time, and um, figured out pretty quickly after graduating that if I wanted to do anything in the wildlife field, that I would need a master's degree to be uh, anything more than uh, seasonal help or technician, which there's nothing wrong with that, but I just knew that that was not a long-term goal I wanted to do. So um, anyhow, I went to Texas Tech with my wife. We were out there in Lubbock for three years. Um, I worked on a master's in wildlife management out there and uh, specialized in quail. So actually, when we moved out there, I didn't have a position. And um, when interviewed with the uh, chair uh, kind of the uh, quail, say, I guess the quail specialty there in the wildlife department. and. I was able to get a, a graduate assistantship and uh, did my master's on Bob White and scaled quail. Um, specifically, I, I dealt with their immune system because there's a lot of disease processes. That's a that's a big uh, hypothesized uh, reason we're seeing a decline, especially out there in Texas, um, Oklahoma, kind of the last stronghold for Bob Whites. But uh, not a whole lot of uh, not a whole lot of research really going into their immune system a lot of, a lot of research going into their uh, to their uh, parasites and disease processes out there but I mean it doesn't really do you any good 
to measure prevalence without really knowing how how well their immune system is functioning. So um, anyhow, long story short, uh, after finishing my degree, uh, I accepted a job with the Alabama Wildlife Federation as a private lens technical assistance biologist. So we were boots on the ground biologists and provided technical assistance to private landowners across Alabama ranging. I mean, the projects we dealt with range from longleaf restoration, uh, native warm season grassland restoration to deer management to rabbit habitat. So just kind of a, um, just kind of a cadre of different, you know, projects, just whatever folks needed. Um, and we provided that as a free service to landowners in Alabama and still are still around. Uh, two biologists that are there um, do a great job. It's a fine organization. I'd recommend anybody in Alabama to utilize that if they need some wildlife assistance. Um, so did that for four years and then uh, worked for the Department of Wildlife, Fisheries and Parks in Mississippi as a uh, public lands manager. Uh, I was a supervising biologist for all the wildlife management areas in southeast Mississippi. And uh, I burned out on that pretty quick. Um, just, wasn't, <laughs> just wasn't really for me. There was some neat opportunities to do some management, but um, you know, the state. I love the people I worked with, but of course, when you're working with a government entity, there's politics involved, and that just wasn't really my cup of tea. And so, um, I actually got tied in with national lands through Clint Flowers um, via the Alabama Wildlife Federation, who I was working for. Uh, he and okay. Ford, he and Forrest Deering would kick landowners to me uh, that needed technical assistance. And uh, in fact, when I moved to Mobile, Clint and I lived in the same neighborhood, <laughs> which uh, is kind of neat. But um, anyhow, so that's kind of how I got tied into it. And about the time we moved back to Mississippi, when I started with the state, I got my license in Alabama. And then when I decided to leave the state, I transferred my reciprocal license to Mississippi. So I've uh, been doing this for about, about three years now, uh, about full time, a little over a year, but I've had my license for about three years now. So that's kind of long story there. But gotcha. So you've been a kind of you've been able to marry the the knowledge that you acquired through grad school and the state work that you did with what you're doing now with national land and working just with land interactions and, and land exchanges and stuff. Yeah, I would say that I would say my my work in Alabama there with Alabama Wildlife Federation was a lot more meaningful from a point of view of just getting to work with a lot of different programs that private landowners uh, would be interested in using. Like, for example, the Natural natural Resource Conservation Service programs like EQIP and uh, CSP and things of that sort. I was real familiar with those. I'm a little bit out of practice, to be honest with you, <laughs> um, but um, trying to pick that back up. I do some scribe burning for folks as well, habitat management and consulting uh, as well. Uh, to land as well as land sales but yeah so just you know as, as you kind of come into the market with this background in in game birds particularly quail uh you know how how well have you been able to leverage that in is that is that a fairly popular sort of when you're working with landowners is that something that's highly sought after is that something that you're seeing sort of a niche market for you know, I would say maybe in Southeast Mississippi, not so much. I, f I feel like the, the land ownership here in Southeast Mississippi is a little bit different than Southwest Alabama. Um, I would say it's, you know, outside of your industrial forest land, uh, you know, your, your timber companies like Rainier and Warehouser and things like that. Uh, it tends to be a little bit smaller 
um, parcels, so not as maybe appropriate for well management. But um, I would say in southwest Alabama, especially when I was working private lands a couple of years ago, uh, there was a pretty good demand for that. And that's because you've got larger landowners in southwest Alabama. In my opinion, that's I mean, that's just my opinion, uh, just anecdotal. I've noticed that <laughs> land ownership seems to be a little bit different between the two states. And and it, um, but it, going back to your original question, yeah, leverage wise, uh, I feel like it's more. I find more interest in Alabama than I do in, in Mississippi. Now I do think it's growing in Mississippi. Everybody has stories of quail hunting with their dad or their grandfather back in the day and the quail just aren't there. So, um, I mean, that's a common thread pretty much across the Southeast. Um, they're just not the numbers there used to be. And, um, you know, I think a lot of people are interested in it, but to really do it any justice, you really have to have a pretty sizable piece of property. Um, there's a lot of, you know, disjunct populations kind of scattered around. And, you know, if you're not managing the landscape at, at kind of a landscape level, you, you're going to have isolated pockets. It's not going to be what it used to be when um, things were a little bit different, you know, different 50, 60 years ago. So. Yeah. So, and that, that's a kind of a good, a good conversation point to jump into is, is, you know, you brought up land size a couple of times there. What, what is a, a proper land size? If you're looking to, and let's say, you know, anybody can take any kind of size land and plant quail on it and go out and hunt them later, right? Like that's that's something that anybody can do. But to to create a sustainable population, what kind of land size are are you looking at that you want to look at for a minimum? For a minimum for a huntable population, that's pretty hard to answer that. Um, ah. <laughs> I mean, it's in the wildlife field. It's it's the, the any questions they always. I mean, it's just kind of a running joke in the wildlife field. Is is it's always it depends. Um, it depends on what the habitat is. Uh, it depends on, you know, if it's just closed canopy pine plantation, I mean, and you're not willing to do any work on it. I mean, effectively, you know, it could be thousands of acres and you might have pockets of them here and there, but I mean, I would say in quality habitat, you probably need a minimum of a thousand, but preferably closer to 2000 acres to really manage for a good huntable population. And that's being, I mean, that's being pretty conservative. Of course, the more more land you have and the more habitat you can dedicate to quail management, the better off you are. Um, I mean, quail management is pretty intensive. It is. So, um, but there are a lot of things people can do to to improve, you know, habitat for quail. Um, but I would say probably a minimum a thousand, but really two thousand is more appropriate. And what's what's sort of like the daily range of a bobwhite? As far as how far are they going to move in a day? Again, that just depends. I mean, it, it depends on the habitat. Thing it depends on the habitat quality. Ideally, if you can provide all the things it needs in a smaller area, I mean, they're probably twenty acres. You know, twenty to forty acres. And it is, is, of course, it's seasonal too. Um, but you know, most of the time, they're not. Not all the things they need are usually in the same area, so people are, you know. It, it as far as management goes, you've just got to make sure you've got all your ducks in a row. Um, in the yeah. So, so if you're going into a if you're going into a piece of land, let's let's take it from the perspective of somebody you know looking to to cultivate. Maybe it's not quail specific, but they want quail as part of their their you know land management plan. 
What are some of the first things that you look at as a biologist as going in and saying like, all right, what's good, what's bad? Uh, you know, where's where's the strengths and where's the weaknesses of this land? You know, what's some of the first things that you're sort of examining? Well, I, I would say I'd, I'd preface that with saying I'd, I'd have to talk to them first about what their goals and objectives are and see kind of where they stand in terms of what their land, I mean, their goals right. their land are. So, I mean, if they are 100 percent, not, not let's say not 100 percent, let's say that they're 80 percent, you know, production um, focused with timberland and only 20 percent wildlife. It's going to be pretty limited, you know, and they're going to have to understand that, you know, you're not going to optimize your, your quail uh, population by managing for production uh, from a timberland standpoint. But um, let's say that they're 100 percent wildlife oriented. They don't care about the timber at all, uh, which is an ideal situation. Um, what I'm usually looking for, and this is usually a, a discussion that you know, before I even say anything, they want to know what they can plant for quail to feed them. Well, that's not typically foods, not always the most limiting factor for, for most wildlife species and for, for bobwhite quail here in the Southeast, really the, probably one of the more important things that people overlook is reproductive habitat. That's usually the one, number one thing I'm looking for. It's not about planting more food for them, which, I mean, food's good. Don't, don't get me wrong. The more you can provide for them to eat, that's great. But really, I mean, if you want to make more quail, turkeys, or, or whatever it is, you've got to have the appropriate reproductive habitat. And for quail and, and turkeys, that's, that's nesting habitat and brood rearing habitat. And that's typically the first thing I'm looking for. What does that look like? Is it a particular plant species, particular size, particular, you know, is it, is it shrub versus, you know, ground cover? You know, what's, what's sort of the, the culmination that you're looking for in a good breeding habitat? Well, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, it's kind of site specific, um, but in general, you're looking for early successional habitat for nesting habitat. And that's usually composed of a, just a, excuse me, is made of a, um, Early successional habitat is essentially native warm season grasses or bunch grasses is what you think think of. Okay. Like native warm season grasses, I'm talking about bunch grasses because usually your quail are gonna, your bob whites are gonna nest at the base of at least one year growth of native warm season grasses or bunch grasses. Um, you know, that's that's I'm not when I say bunch grasses, I don't mean sod forming grasses like bahia grass or Bermuda grass, which are typical pasture grasses. I'm talking about things like big blue stem, switch grass, little blue stem, uh, things of that sort. So those are kind of what you see here in the southeast. Uh wire grass farther to the east in um, like the wiregrass region of Alabama. Um you're looking for those kind of grasses. You're looking for scattered shrubs and vines and forbs and things of that sort. So, um, and, you know, with an occasional larger shrubs and trees and things of that sort. So, you know, a lot of people, when when you think about a, a southern quail plantation, what do you think of? Like, I'm sure you've seen pictures of it in magazines. What's it look like? Oh, I just think of the big road fields that you normally see or, you know, kind of the sprawling savannah kind of look to it. Yeah. And so, I mean, that, that, that's pretty to look at, but really, I mean, those are good for hunting. I mean, they're pretty to look at and they're open and good for hunting. And a lot of times they will use that for nesting habitat, but usually a lot of times they're missing a component. And part of that, what they're missing is kind of that shrubby component, which is used for thermal and escape cover. So, um, which is not 
you know, as important during the nesting. But in general, if you can have that together with your nesting habitat, then it's kind of managed the same. Um, really, the more diversity you can have there, better off you are. So if you can have your nesting habitat as well as that escape in thermal cover, loafing cover, um, you know, in the same area, I mean, that's that's ideal right there. But that that's that's what you're looking for nesting um, cover. Now, broodering uh, habitat is a little bit different. Uh, broodering habitat is more of a it's more fork dominated. So like broadleaf weeds is what you're looking for. So essentially you're making a mini forest. You want kind of a bare dirt component with these real leafy broadleaf weeds out there to kind of create a canopy so that they're protected from aerial predators. But those really weedy areas produce a lot of insects and they need that high protein from those insects for the first two weeks of life before they can fly. So to help them get their primary feathers so they can get off the ground. So, you know, that's when they're most vulnerable is those first two weeks of life. And that's when they really need high, high protein intake and brooding habitat. Um, they need the ability to move through those weedy areas. So that's where the bear dirt department comes in. And so a lot of times people will plant that. You can manage it naturally, but you can also plant it. Um, a lot of people plant partridge pea um, as one of those. Um, it's a big one. I know like on tall timbers, they do a lot of partridge pea patches and things of that sort, um, you know, because it provides that overhead cover as well as a lot of insects. But if you think about it, like if you're walking along a, a ditch, you know, along the side of a road, you know, and it's real weedy during the summertime, you know, how many grasshoppers and beetles and everything like that are you kicking up? You know, that, that's kind of what you're looking for. So I got you. So if, so if I'm hearing you right, you know, when you think about your typical quail plantation where you see, you know, it's you see sprawling kind of like monoculture fields of, you know, grasses or or, you know, whatever they have out there. It, those are those are more set up for the hunt. Right. It's not necessarily to sustain a population. It's more right. for the aesthetic quality of like hunting in a wide open field and you get clean shots. Right. Right. And and so some, I mean, some plantations, I've been on some plantations in East Alabama that do a great job. I mean, they've got a lot of diversity. They also, I mean, they have those quail courses, you know, where it's open and it's pretty and you get to see the dog's point and you get clean shots and you can see where everybody is. And then, you know, they've got some areas mixed in where it's, it's kind of nasty. And when I say it's nasty, you know, it's just got, you know, it's got some brush in it, which is good. I mean, brush is not necessarily a bad thing for quail. Um, in fact, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's necessary, especially for escape and thermal and loafing cover to kind of keep them shielded from the elements as well as predators. So, um, but yeah, yeah. I mean, the more diversity you can provide, you know, the better off you are. And those, like I said, a lot of those plantations, they do a great job of interspersing those open fields with quality habitat. And then, you know, I'm sure there's some out there where they just, you know, it's pretty and that's just the way it is. So. And you mentioned closed canopy forest is not being all that suitable to sustain quail populations. I was wondering if you could explain that a little bit, because I'm assuming you're talking more of like your timber investment kind of setup, where like you have a lot of timber that kind of closes in. You got your you got your crown spacing there kind of maximized to for the trees, but it's not necessarily good for animals like quail. Right. So, you know. So you're not going to optimize your, your wildlife habitat specifically for quail if you're production minded. And now, so a lot of times that's a conversation I have to have with landowners. Like, you know, what are, you, what are your goals? What are your objectives here? 
And, uh, you know, have to come to an understanding that, you know, you're going to have to sacrifice one or the other a lot of times. And sometimes you can, you can make compromises, but, um, from a, from a timber standpoint for quail, really to promote that early successional habitat we talked about for the, the nesting cover, the broodering habitat, um, just all those plant species that really thrive in those more open environments where you get a lot of sunlight on the ground. You want at least 50, you know, at least 50% of the ground with sunlight on it. Uh, that's a minimum that for, for quail. Okay. And so, um, Really, you're looking at probably about 45, 40, 45 uh, square feet per acre basal area um, is, is kind of a good number for quail. Now, that's that's pretty low. I mean, that's what when I'm talking about, you know, as quail plantation, you're looking at 30 to 50, somewhere in there, basal area, square feet per acre. Um, and so you, it's pretty open. You know, you've got room to move around and you're getting plenty of sunlight on the ground now. You know, a closed canopy, let's say an unthinned uh, 12-year-old pine plantation. I mean, there's really not much value out there for wildlife in general. And a lot of times, you know, another conversation I have with landowners, usually they're not just hyper-focused on quail. You know, they usually, the big three are quail, turkey, and deer. And usually if you're managing for quail, you know, you're managing for the other two as well. With with a little bit, with turkeys, you know, it's a little bit, it's a little bit different management, not necessarily. It's, it's very close, but there's a little bit, you know, a little bit more that goes into it as far as where the, the nesting habitat needs to be. They like maybe a little bit brushier than quail do, um, a little bit more shrubs. And then, um, but, you know, it provides a lot of quality habitat for them and their poults. And then for deer, it provides a ton of browse. It really does. So, uh, I mean, so if you're managing for quail, typically you're managing for a lot of other wildlife species. I was going to say, because you mentioned other things in there, like having, you know, a lot of forbs and stuff like that in, 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 in the makeup of, of what you do with, with the plant life. So I'm assuming that, yeah, that would kind of manage for deer and, and other animals as well. Um, what do you want to, what, what's sort of the ideal water source that you want to have set up? Is it, is it moving water? Is it still water? Like what's, what's sort of you know, the happy place that you, you can set up for quail? Uh, you know, it's actually for quail in the Southeast, not usually an issue. Um, you know, they get a lot of their water from preformed water, which is water inside the plants and insects that they eat. Okay. Um, you know, and so there's a lot of debate, like, you know, I did my, my master's out in Texas, which is a semi-arid, you know, out there on the high plains and the rolling plains of Texas, semi-arid out there. So, you know, there was a lot of debate whether or not it was necessary for, for quail to have water. And some people had, you know, guzzlers out there is what they called them, which were little aprons where little concrete aprons, aprons where the quail could go and, and, and get water. Here in the Southeast, it's not typically an issue because we get plenty of rainfall and plenty of water. Now it's not, not say that they won't use it. So I don't typically focus on water sources for quail because we, we typically don't lack water and they typically get a lot of their water already through preformed water. So I don't have a good answer for you on that because it's not something I'm usually too concerned with. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what you want mostly is, is the, you know, they're getting their water from the food source, meaning, you know, little bugs are full of water, um, you know, things like that. So what sort of, what's what's the mix that you want to, you know, you can't exactly grow bugs, but that's a high protein source for, for quail. But what are the food sources that you want available that will bring in, sort of the insects that you want, the desirable things to hold the population? 
really, I mean, that's really going to be the, the, the kind of that weedy component I was talking about. So the Forbes and legumes, um, and a lot of that's going to be, you know, promoted number one through an open canopy or not even just a, not even forest land necessarily, you know, in the, uh, black belt of Alabama, you know, that used to be a lot of prairie. And, uh, you know, so you don't necessarily need trees. You just need to have the right mixture on the ground of those native grasses and those forbs and legumes. And a lot of that has to do with management as well. And, and when I say management, I'm referring to either um, prescribed fire or, you know, cool season disking, things of that sort. And um, I mean, but going to your original question, I mean, you, you really, for, from bug production or insect production, you're looking at just a lot of forbs and legumes, a diversity of those. And sometimes, you know, if it's a, let's say it's a reclaimed um, pasture where you're doing a, a restoration project, you may have to plant something because a lot of times your seed bank is depleted and you, you've had to take it back down to pretty much dirt by you know, removing the pasture grasses. So, um I mean, I know that's a long about <laughs> answer, but uh, really the, the forbs and legumes are, are your, those are the, kind of the stars of insect production. I got you. So, so what, and what you're essentially talking about managing for is you know, you're, you're bringing in plant life for decent cover. It's giving pathways for, for quail to move around, but you're also, you're growing a food source for the quail's primary foods, right? Like you're, you're hoping to bring in the right insects that, that they're going to eat. That's going to sustain a population. Am I hearing that right? Well, I mean, I mean, the quail eat a lot more than insects. I mean, they eat a lot of seeds. I mean, that's why you want right. a diversity of seed producing plants as well as, you know, that, that broad kind of broadleaf component uh, from the weeds. And it's, number one, it's, you know, it's to produce insects, but also to produce seeds as well as cover. But yeah, I mean, you're, you're growing, you're trying to produce food that's producing food. So, and you, yeah, and you yeah, want you have multiple levels there that you're trying to produce right. for. And then what, so as far as the plant life, the quail are going to focus on for food wise, I, I realize it's probably regional as to where, what they're adapted to, but right. what, what are some, what are some general sort of things that you can identify of like, okay, yeah, this is good. Quail are going to eat this. Uh, you know, a, a lot of the um, partridge pea, you know, that's a big one course, you know, uh, the Lespedesias, the native Lespedesias, um, you know, there's a lot of back in the day, wildlife knowledge recommended bicolor Lespedesia and Ceresia Lespedesia a lot. And those are highly invasive. In fact, um, <laughs> so I kind of like watch it with those. Yeah. So, um, no, that's not to say they won't eat them. They, they will eat the, the, those invasive Lespedesias, but the native ones are much better, you know, as far as nutrition goes, as well as, you know, not really disrupting the habitat as well. So, um, you some, any sunflower species, and I'm not talking about, you know, ones you plant in the field for doves and things of that sort, which you can bolster, you know, you can, you can supplement with those if you want to, but a lot of your, a lot of your, uh, native sunflowers, like your marsh sunflower and, and things like that. Um, those are great ones. And then, um, I mean, you know, things like gay feather, um, the actresses, those are good ones as well. So, um, I mean, there's just a number of things that just, I mean, it just depends on the locality, but those are some general ones that a lot of, and really highly visible ones. A lot of folks can see. Yeah. So if, if someone's taking a bare piece of land and like, you know, let's, let's take ideal conditions. Let's, you know, let's, let's go for fantasy land time. Right. 
So let's let's say they got a couple thousand acres and and you know they're not they're not using a whole lot of it for timber investment. Um, but the the ground's pretty raggedy, right? Like it's got a lot of pasture, you know, those those kind of like food producing, you know, you're talking grasses more for like food production, right? And they want to kind of strip it bare and produce a quail habitat. You know, what's what's sort of the the process look like? It's it's you know, burning and then establishing new plants or you know. And then what's the the timeline going to kind of look like? And, and to to make it an easier thing to answer, let's say more specific to your area. Well, you know, let's say you're taking pasture land and converting it. Pasture land is extremely difficult to convert to quality quality habitat. And that's mostly because your pasture grasses like Bahia and Bermuda are extremely aggressive and long-lived and take multiple I mean, they take multiple treatments to really remove. And sometimes you're just always going to be fighting them. There's going to be patches that pop up. And Bermuda is especially difficult to get rid of. Usually once you've got it, you've got it. Um, but typically your process with, let's say it's an old pasture, it's going to start off with at least a year of probably herbicide treatments to really wear that grass out and get it back down. Now, how aggressive you go with it depends on, you know, how much, how much money you want to spend on chemical. Um, and also if you're going to try to, you know, manage for, let's say some native grasses in that are already in the seed bank there. I mean, there are situations really where, I mean, it's beneficial just to nuke it, really just smoke the pasture grasses and come back and replant it. And then there's sometimes where you can be a little, a little bit more gentle and, you know, kind of conserve what you have already out there. Let's say you've got an old field that's got native grasses kind of already popping through and you kind of want to conserve that. Uh, you just, you know, you're going to be a little more conservative in, in what kind of chemicals you put out there. So, uh, but it probably about at least growing season of chemical application. And then, you know, you would do a, an assessment the next growing season. Um, and that, again, that depends on, you know, if you were being real conservative or if you were being real aggressive. Let's say you were real aggressive. What you yeah. would do, is you would just nuke it. You know, that growing season, at least one growing season. And then you would come back with, let's say, um, you know, you would, I would in, in this case, I would work up a seed list and we would come back during the dormant months, uh, usually farther, about, about now, actually, you know, kind of probably January through through March, early March, when it's still kind of cool and everything's still dormant, which uh, you would you would come back and you would plant, you know, these native seeds. And there's some great, you know, uh, seed producers out there like Roundstone um, Seeds out of Kentucky. They've got some good quality seeds uh, for native restoration habitat. That, excuse me, for native habitat restoration. Gotcha. And, uh, so um, you would come back and you would plant those and then, you know, you'd take a growing season really to assess. And a lot of times that a lot of the stuff that you plant probably won't, you probably won't see it until the next season, the next growing season. So really, I mean, the process from a pasture to, you know, some something you can actually see on the ground probably about three years, three growing I was going to say, so you're, you're talking about a three year cycle just to be able to see if you got things right. And, right. then, and then you still have some evaluation after that, right? Like you're, you're still looking at your, your plants and seeing how, you know, what the diversity looks like. So you might not even know sort of what you have for, I mean, it would probably be fair to say up to five years, like really what you have going on. Right. Right. And, and that's, that's the thing with wildlife management. 
um, just about any species, you, you know, there's always going to be a lag time. Um, it's a natural, when you're dealing with natural systems, you know, it always takes, takes at least two to three years and then probably five years before you really start having anything you can really truly assess. Um, so, but yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a long-term project. I mean, it's not, it's not a set it and forget it. And that's the same thing with like, you know, there's a big push for pollinator habitat, which is great for quail too. But a lot of people don't realize that they're, it's pretty intensive to manage pollinator habitat. I know I'm kind of off on a tangent right now, but. <laughs> no, that's I mean, good. That's good. It's, it's all learning, right? But, but it's not a set it and forget it. I mean, these are constantly changing systems. You can't, I mean, there's just about nothing in the natural world you can sit in the world. You can set it and forget it. I mean, that's pretty rare. And so you've really got to, you know, you've got to keep eyes on it, monitor it and everything like that. But yeah, probably at least two to three growing seasons is what you're looking at. As far as the active sort of process of it, is it is it big change and then sit back and wait to see what happens? Or do you need to be on it and like checking up with the land on like a weekly basis and seeing how things are going? No, it's more seasonal. I mean, it probably, you know, it, really during the growing season is really when you need to monitor it. Um, now, of course, you know, you've got some cool season stuff that comes in as well. Um, you'll probably, you know, a little less during the dormant cool season. Uh, a little less monitoring, but during the growing season, you know, it's really, you know, when you want to keep eyes on it, check for anything. So for example, sometimes when you remove pasture grasses, you get a bunch of other ag weeds that come up you've got to deal with. So, um, I mean, sometimes the next year stuff that wasn't there the year before shows up, you know, because it's in the seed bank. Um, and so that's one of the things though, uh, and I don't think I've discussed this. I, I prefer to do um, either just broadcast without disturbing the soil or seed drills, native seed drills. Um, that way you're not stirring up stuff that's in the seed bank. You know, you're not going through with a disc and disking it under and planting on top of it. Sometimes you have to do that, but preferably if you can get away without disturbing the soil profile, um, it'll help, you know, manage other noxious weeds that might come up. So. Yeah. And then, so you've got a heck of a background in this, right? I mean, you, you've basically centered a whole lot of your life in, in this study and in working with, with quail habitats, particularly just from, from a biology perspective, from your educational background, and now what you're doing with land sales, what is like, you know, I guess this is a little bit more away from just strictly managing for quail habitat, but what is sort of the ideal situation that, that you walk into with land sales that kind of gets you excited when when you get in there and and you're like, all right, this is like this is my happy place. Um, you can be a little more, I guess, a little more specific on what you. When when you're working in, when you're working with a client and they have got a piece of land that you're looking at, either cultivating with them, working working on the sale, working on the transaction. Um, the things that they want to do to it, like if, if they're like sort of like an ideal client. And then, cause a lot of these sales, you know, a lot of our, our agents, our, our land professionals work with the sale, but they also work as a consultant afterwards. And they're working with clients on a regular basis, you know, as, right. as they kind of progress the land, what's, what's sort of like your ideal situation that you work with? Well, I mean, really, if they're really wildlife minded, um, it, it's, I mean, especially if they're not too you know, timber production uh, specific. Um, that's that's kind of really ideal for me because it gives it gives a lot of you know a lot of latitude in what we can do. You know, when you have those restrictions uh, for whether it's a buyer or seller, where they're just not 
willing to really waver on one specific thing, especially when it comes to timber production. Um, you know, it really kind of ties my hands in terms of managing the property. So uh, ideally, I mean, down here, prescribed fire is just such a useful tool. And it's such a, I mean, it has in a landowner's toolbox, it is probably the cheapest tool down here. But it's also, you know, for a lot of folks, it's also really, um, I guess, kind of, you get that pucker factor because you think about fire. I mean, there's some, some there's been such a neg- negative connotation with fire, uh, specifically out west, where kind of where you are. Um, it is kind of the media really pushes it, but, um, you know, I think down here, it's really useful. And if you can get landowners to, you know, kind of get on the side, like, Hey, this is, this is going to be great for the habitat. Um, and it's not going to cost you a ton of money, you know, that that's ideal right there. If they're willing to do something like that, especially if they're willing to do kind of get hands on. And I've got some landowners I'm working with that are like, Hey, you know, if you're burning, can I, can I come help? I'm like, yeah. You know, if it works out for your schedule, that'd be great. I'd I'd like for you to get on in the future. If you want to do the management, you know, and get some experience, I think, I mean, I think that's great. So that's kind of the ideal situation where they're kind of willing to roll up their sleeves and also, you know, not, not so, stuck on one particular facet of management, whether it's timber or they just want one specific, or even if they just want to plant, you know, food plots. I mean, food plots are great. They're supplemental, but, you know, they, um, you know, that can also just kind of limit what you, what you see as an end result, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So it, and we, we've had past episodes on, on prescribed burns and, you know, Talk a little bit about the benefits of that, because because you mentioned that is you know one of the most powerful tools that, that a landowner can use. You know what exactly, and, and you know a lot of people just view a burn as a chance to eradicate understory or to to knock it down or to you know clear pathways and stuff. But it does a lot of other things. I wondered if you could like speak to that a little bit. Yeah. So I mean, one of the things is it puts a lot of the a lot of the mineral nutrients back into the ground. Uh, it's, a, it's a big thing. I mean, it does what you've already stated. I mean, it's it's great for reducing vegetative growth, um, but it can also, depending on when you apply, it can also kind of change the plant community. It can favor different plants at different times of the year. Um, and so that the, the real benefit is is really just the diversity. I mean keeping a lot of the the underbrush down really opens up the sunlight, which we, we'd already talked about. It's a big component and allows a lot of your, your vegetation and the understory there to, to really thrive. And so, um, and, and a lot of those plants that are great for quail also require some kind of scarification, whether, you know, whether it be through fire or, or, or other processes, but a lot of times, a lot of these down here in the Southeast are really specific they need they need to be burned. Uh, for example, longleaf pine is it gets a lot of you know press for bobwhite quail habitat, and it's not necessarily the the pine itself because you can manage loblaw and shortleaf similar sim, similarly. But uh, where it really shines is it's you know you can burn it early and you can burn it often. So. Uh, whereas those other species, specifically loblolly, um, you know, you can't really burn it till usually your first thinning, um, unless you burn it very, very carefully. Whereas longleaf, usually the year or two after it's planted, you can start burning and keeping things open and um, just kind of allow those those native species to really thrive. 
And that's just because of the long leaves, you know, they have a sort of a natural fire resistance. Is that what you're kind of getting at? Or? Yes. Yes. They're, they're fire. They're not fireproof. They're fire. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You get a big enough fire. You're going to tell, you're going to torch anything, but, but there's some resistance there naturally within those long leaves. Yeah. Yeah. They're, um, you know, they're, they're pretty resilient in the face of fire. As long as you, you know, you're not burning at the wrong time of year. Like when they're candling about this time, when they start candling that putting on growth, new growth on the meristem there. So. Gotcha. Gotcha. So what, you know, in, in your area, it, you know, it's not necessarily a situation of if you build it, they will come with quail, right? So do you want to like go get planter quail to like to to spark up your populations or or are you looking to draw them in? Is that sort of the, the ways that you're looking to manage those things? Um, draw, draw them in preferably. Um, okay. There's been a lot of limited success with transplantation. Um, I typically don't recommend that. Um, now there's some you know, like tall timbers has done some research and they've got a program, I think in Alabama where they will, they like wild rear or they have a wild, um, hen raise hatchery produce chicks, right? The ones they hatch out, but they're wild. I think they're wild strain. Uh, and I'll have to check on that, but we did a little bit of that in Texas and generally translocation just doesn't really work if you're just going to let's say you buy a bunch of eggs from a breeder and hatch them out and you just turn them loose typically the survival rate's pretty much close to zero Uh, oh is it really so are they getting eaten or are they just like not making it are they like leaving or uh usually it's immortality um and that's one that's one of the reasons i think tall timbers was doing some you know they were doing some work on wild reared wild strain hatched quail so um you know they have some they've got the genetics the wild genetics because a lot of your farm raised quail i mean there's been some genetic drift and things of that sort to where they're i mean they still have a lot of the basic same basic instincts they're just not necessarily as thrifty as their wild counterparts um gotcha okay so and it's just like chickens you know wild jungle fowl versus domestic chickens um kind of the same thing um Anyhow, um, but usually it's just mortality. It's high mortality rate. Uh, usually they get picked off by predators, uh, hawks, you know, air, aerial predators, hawks, owls, things of that sort. Um, they they tend to really pick those ones because, I mean, they're, I mean, they just, they don't know any better. Right, right. You, they're, they're not mentally equipped with the right tools to, to evade and, and find all the right food. So, so you are looking to like draw in, you know, your local you know, wild right. bird populations to when you're, when you're doing that. Right. And there's been, like I said, uh, there's been some, some research and I would have to go back and re- review. It's been a few years since grad school, but reviewing the literature, it seems like there's, you know, some of your, your domestic quail, you know, some of them do survive, and, but there's some speculation whether or not that the addition of their genetics is a good thing to the local population. So, I get it too. Um, so if you can draw, if you can draw in or, you know, improve what's already there. Um, it's usually my recommendation, but yeah, it all depends on people's goals. If people are specific, I mean, if they want to produce good quail habitat and have something pretty to look at and, you know, do a put and tape take operation, then, you know, if that's what their goal is that we can, we can do that. But, you know, if you're wanting to produce a huntable population of Bob white quail, uh, really you need to try to improve what you already have or draw them in. 
Gotcha. And then a lot of what you're doing is like you're focusing on native plant species just because of what that means for for that area. It's you know, they're going to be more sustainable. They're going to be more nutrient or have more nutrient quality in them just because they're working with the natural environment in that area. Um, And so is that something you kind of focus on is is like is it and I'm I'm hearing that is like you sound kind of keyed in on on your native grasses, your native plants, that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I prefer the the native route um, just from a long term management standpoint. Um, you know, the, the input it may be higher up front, but long term, you know, it's really management. You know, with prescribed fire most of the time, as well as yeah, yeah. maybe some selected um, herbicides every once in a while. I'll give you an example there. Um, a fella down in uh, landowner down in uh, Baldwin County, Alabama. Um, in fact, I think he was a client of Clint's maybe several years ago when I was working down that way. And uh, he was, he was focused on quail Um, and it it was a nice property. It it needed some, but it needed some work. Um, And it had a great, had great native. I could tell it had some good native stuff in the understory. The problem was, is there was another native that had become just, it had become dominant. Right. And so that was gallberry which is pretty common down here. It's real waxy. It's fire adapted too. It likes to be burned. Um, so you can burn it and it'll come back just because that's, I mean, it's adapted to the area, uh, it's adapted to the fire. Uh, and so in that case, we had to come in and actually manage that native species. And we did that through a, a selective herbicide application uh, that was specific to that and only in specific areas. Uh, we didn't want to damage. There were a lot of young longleaf and then, Longleaf kind of grow in these young areas called, and called domes. It's essentially, you know, it's an open area where they seed in. And it just kind of, it, literally, it's kind of like a dome. You've got taller ones in the middle and it kind of. Okay. Yeah. Closer. As it gets closer to the shaded areas, it kind of, the, the little ones kind of fall down. And it, I mean, they come smaller just because they're, you know, they're competing with a bigger tree. So it's kind of neat. But what we did is I uh, did a selective curbside application on that property to remove gallberry or at least thin it out. We didn't want to remove it all the way because remember we wanted some brushy uh, habitat out there because quail need it. They do. Yeah. yeah. And so we did that and uh, a local contractor came in and did a a great job spraying it. That worked with me on it. And um, he's got just a bang up property now we had the next couple of years we had all kind of stuff coming in that you couldn't see yet all the leatrices gay feathers came in uh toothache grass um just a bunch of sunflowers i mean it was beautiful uh, the next couple of years it's really a showpiece now but um you know that's that's one of the things with with wildlife management a lot of times it's not a lot of people want to focus on well, let's just plant this instead of looking at Hey, maybe maybe we need to focus on this, and even sometimes native species can be an issue. So you just kind of really got to nuance it for quail. I think it's just more. I mean, they're they're, they're more intensive to manage than most wildlife species. You know, deer pretty mobile. So I mean, you can. I mean, they don't necessarily need everything right there. They can travel. Whereas you know, let's say something the size of your hand right there. You know, it's going to take them a little more time to to get what they need in uh, an area. So. Um, it can be pretty intensive, but you know you kind of have to have a uh, maybe a keen eye for uh, the nuances there. So, yeah, yeah. So, and you know that you've you've touched on it a few times now, and I think that that's fairly you know it's it's common sense, but it's a good thing to always remind of is it depends on what your goals are. 
is, wow. is you have to you have to really give some thought over how much work you want to put in, what you want to get out of it, what the end objective is, and and then manage the process in between, right? Right. Right. And I mean, there's a lot that goes in. I mean, a lot that goes into it. And, and sometimes it's, you know, it's not necessarily specific to just, uh, let's say, just a locale. I mean, a lot of times you have to look at the underlying soils as well. I mean, like, for example, we talked about planting, you know, on a old pasture site. Well, what are the soils I'm telling you? Like, if you look at the site and it's, you know, really rich soils and or it's got some wet to it, you know, what you plant is going to be different than if you have a really droughty soil because, you know, different plants are adapted to different sites. And so you've just got to, I mean, there's a lot of things to take into account, including your, your goals as well. So. Gotcha. That's all very useful information. Well, Hey, t- I had you booked for an hour here. I don't want to like kill off your whole day and, uh, and, and run this, you know, in the afternoon or anything. So, um, man, I appreciate your expertise. You, you know, you've got a wealth of, of knowledge here and it's, it's good to sort of be able to kind of dive in and get into the, I, I would call it like the finer details of, of sort of, you know, particularly quail management. Um, so much appreciated, Drew. I appreciate your time here and, uh, and thank yeah. you. Well, I appreciate you having me. Awesome. I'll have your contact information in the, in the uh, podcast notes. So if you are in the, the, you know, in Drew's area, you're around Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Uh, this is, this is a person you want to talk to about your land, especially if it involves, you know, game bird management. Um, talk to Drew Arnold here and, and we'll have his information. All right. Thanks, Mac. Excellent, man. Thank you. This concludes episode number 35 for the National Land Realty Podcast, discussing quail habitat management with Drew Arnold out of Hattiesburg, Mississippi. You can learn more about land ownership or the buying and selling of land at nationalland.com.